Well, good evening. Good to see everybody. Glad that you're here and hope you've had a good week. And we are to Zechariah chapter 12. We are to the final three chapters of the book. So the next three weeks we'll be, uh, we'll be wrapping up Zechariah. So we are to chapter 12. We'll look at all 14 verses of chapter 12 tonight. So let's have a word of prayer and we'll begin. God, thank you for the opportunity to come and study your word together. Your word is life. It is power. It is truth. And God, in tonight's passage, you tell us what's going to happen at the end times, what's going to happen in the days to come. So I thank you, Lord, for, for sharing this information with us. And God, help us to live by what you've told us. And I pray the Holy Spirit will be our teacher tonight, giving us wisdom and insight. Thank you for those who have joined us online as well. Father, I pray your blessings upon them. And as they study God's word with us this evening as well, may you speak to their hearts as well as you do ours. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, we begin tonight with our quiz. You thought I forgot, didn't you? I didn't. So we have seven questions tonight. All of them are from last week, chapter 11. So we'll kind of see how much you remember from last week. And uh, so let me ask the question. You write it down or think of it in your mind, and then we'll go back and look at the answers. First of all, real easy one, what does the name Zechariah mean? So that's a layup. We'll give you an easy one first so everybody at least gets one right. What does the name Zechariah mean? Question number two, chapter 11 was fulfilled by what military leader in 70 AD? Remember it talks about how Israel is going to be destroyed. What was the name of the military leader 70 AD from Rome that came in? He became a Became an emperor later, but he was a military general at this time. What was his name? Question number three in chapter 11. Zechariah does role-playing. What image or occupation did he portray to be? Chapter 11. Three different times he was role-playing before the people, probably in the courtyard of the temples where it happened. What was he pretending to be? Question number four, what were the names of the two staffs in chapter 11? Remember, he took two staffs, he named one one thing and one the next. And the God later broke the staffs, which meant that he broke those two. The names of the two staffs in chapter 11. You're looking at me with a confused look tonight. I don't know what that means. Question number five, for what sin... Was Israel, that Israel committed, did God say he would judge the land of Israel later? There was a sin. He said, I'm going to judge Jerusalem and Judah and Israel because they will commit this sin. What is the sin they would commit? Chapter 11 talks about that God would judge the land of Israel for. Question number six. What New Testament figure, disciple of Jesus, did chapter 11 refer to last week? You remember the disciple of Jesus who fulfilled one of the prophecies from Zechariah 11. Disciple of Jesus. And then number seven, last question. What animal did chapter 11 mention that is now extinct in Israel? What animal was mentioned last week in chapter 11 that is now extinct in Israel? So you got them all right. Everybody made a hundred. Question number one, what does the name mean? Zechariah. Yahweh remembers. God remembers. Exactly right. Question two, what, uh, chapter 11 was fulfilled by what military general in 70 AD? 
Titus absolutely came through and, and destroyed Jerusalem. Question number three, in chapter 11, Zechariah role-played. What was the image he played? Shepherd, that's exactly right. He was a shepherd three different times. Wailing shepherd, good shepherd Jesus, and then an evil shepherd at the end. Question number four, what were the names of the two staffs? Union and favor, absolutely. Then they were broken, symbolizing God's union with his people, and his favor with his people would be broken. Question number five, well, what sin did Israel would commit? God said he would judge the land of Israel, rejecting Jesus as Messiah. Remember that? They would reject him and they would kill him, pierce him. They would talk about that tonight as well. But that was the sin they would commit. God would judge the land of Israel because they rejected Jesus as Messiah. Question number six, what New Testament figure did chapter 11 refer to? Judas, 30 pieces of silver, threw up down in the courtyard. The potter's field was purchased. And so you see the image there of Judas fulfilling the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 11. And then the last question, what animal did chapter 11 mention that is now extinct? Lion. Remember the lion talked about in chapter 11 at the beginning, the roar of the lion from the thickets of the Jordan they had lions back in biblical days in that time, but they don't have lions in Israel today. So you'll see that uh, animal was mentioned there that's now extinct in Israel. Anybody get all of them? Okay, not none tonight. All right. So, <laughs> all right. Well, tonight, let's look at chapter 12, a really interesting chapter as we look at it. First of all, the big picture, let me give this to you right quick. Remember the big picture, God's people went to, uh, to captivity in Babylon they then were allowed for 70 years to return. Only a portion of them returned. Most of them stayed there because life was easier in Babylon. You got your kids raised there, been there 70 years. You're comfortable there. So most of them did not go back to Israel because there's nothing left when you get back there. You got to start over. So the older people went back mostly and a few of them got back, started to rebuild the temple, and as you know, they built the altars, got discouraged, ran out of money, they're tired, they quit. Neighbors were discouraging them, the neighboring nations, so they stopped building the temple for 18 years. After 18 years, Zechariah comes on the scene and gives them two messages in this book. Number one, keep rebuilding the temple, don't stop. And number two, the best years of Israel, Jerusalem, are ahead of it, not behind it, but your best days are ahead. They're sitting there looking at the rubble, the charred remains of what's left over, everything's in shambles, and they're probably thinking, our best days are ahead of us? You've got to be kidding. But that was the message, and so he tells them through Zechariah, Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. Now, Zechariah the book, 14 chapters long, it's divided into two parts, chapters 1 through 8 and chapters 9 through 14. 1 through 8 appears to be the immediate time Zechariah started preaching, around 520 B.C. Chapters 9 to 14 appear to be a much later time. Now, if you further divide chapters 9 through 14, they're divided into two parts, 9 through 11, 12 through 14. And they're kind of two distinct parts. Last week, we finished chapter 11. So we've done 9, 10, 11. Now, for the next three weeks, we're going to look at 12, 13, and 14. 
And all three of these chapters have one thing in common. God is telling Israel what's going to happen in the end times. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 appear to be talking about Armageddon, appear to be talking about the millennium, similar to Revelation. Now, there are some Bible scholars who say, no, I don't think he's really talking about the end times in 12, 13, and 14. But what is he talking about? Because what he says is going to happen has not happened. And looks like it will not happen until the end of the world because Revelation describes, describing the end of the world, some of the same things. So I believe, a lot of, a lot of other uh, Bible teachers believe also that 12, 13, and 14, these three chapters are talking about what's going to happen to Israel as the world ends. So we're given a few more details. You know, we went through our Revelation studies. Zechariah gives us a few more details. I think you're going to find these chapters to be interesting. One theologian said, the most important Old Testament section telling us what's going to happen to Israel in the last days, chapter 12. So you see the importance of what we're about to start looking at because you're going to see it, get a glimpse uh, of what happens in the days to come. So let's letter A on your outline. Let's tie chapter 11 to chapter 12. Starting in chapter 12, 19 different times from chapters 12, 13, and 14, the phrase, in that day, occurs. In that day. 19 times in three chapters. What does that signal? It signals the last days. Revelation calls it the day of the Lord. Over and over, Revelation, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. It's talking about the day that's coming at the end of the world. Zechariah calls it in that day, the day of the Lord, talking about the end of the world. So, in this chapter tonight, two main events are in view. Jesus' first coming, where he was crucified. Jesus' second coming, when he comes back and he reigns as king. So, both of those events are in view as we look at tonight. So, let's start looking, letter B on, or on your outline there. Number, uh, first of all, the Lord will give salvation, verses 1 through 9. Interesting passage. First of all, verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Stop right there for a second. How many of your versions say the burden of the Lord? Okay, you got several. The reason is because England, the SV, what I'm reading from, says oracle of the word of the Lord, but the word in Hebrew is the word masa, M-A-S-S-A, masa. And it literally means burden or something on your heart. If you're burdened about something, something's on your mind, right? Something, you're thinking about something, it's on your heart. That's exactly what it's talking about. So God is telling you, his people, I've got something on my mind I want to share with you. Now get the bigger picture. You got a few of the Israelites back from Babylon. They're mostly older. They're tired. They don't have many resources to rebuild with. They're trying as best they can to rebuild the temple, but it's still lying there in rubble. Zechariah comes along and says, you got to keep building. 
And at the end of his prophecy, God tells that group sitting around there, there's something on my heart I want to share with you right now. What was it? Well, you're going to see. So the burden of the word of the Lord concerning what's going to happen to this country, Israel, the land that's in rubble, the land that's charred, the land that they're trying to rebuild, that's the land. Let me tell you what's going to happen the end times. Go on to said verse 1. Oracle of the word of the Lord, burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens, founded the earth, formed the spirit of man within him. So immediately, what is God referring to? Creation. Right? Thus says the Lord, who who formed, stretched out the heavens, founded the earth, created the spirit of man. He's talking about Genesis 1. So what he says is, the very same God who is in control at creation is going to be in control at the end. God was sovereign over all of creation to begin, and he's going to be sovereign over all the world at the end. He was in control at the beginning. He's going to be in control at the end. Now, many of us have no problem saying God is in control at the beginning. But the way the world looks right now, we have a more difficult time believing God's going to be in control at the end. But he is. Now, some believe that the reason creation was referenced here is because... During the Feast of Booths that the Jews would hold every year, at the, at the New Year portion of the Feast of Booths, they would always retell the story of creation to assure the Jews that God is just as much in control right now as he was at the beginning. So now you have at the very closing of the world, when the end times come and Armageddon's being fought and the millennium's happening and everything closes God is in just as much control and just as sovereign, master over heaven and earth, humanity and the affairs of the world, just as much in control then as he was at the first. So he begins by saying, the Lord who created everything is still in control. Verse 2, behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. And the siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. Let me give you a picture here right quick. Jerusalem is a city within Judah. Judah's a tribe, so it'd be like saying Garland is, is a part of the bigger portion of Texas. Jerusalem was a part of the bigger part of Judah. So what he's saying was, the Lord will make Jerusalem like a cup of strong wine to the nations at the end of the world. Now, if you remember in our Revelation study, we saw in Revelation that at the end of the world, the nations are going to form a coalition against Israel, basically the entire world against Israel. It's going to start in the north 
That's why some people theorize it could be Russia, could start in Russia. China would probably be a, uh, an ally that would go along with them. It seems to reference that in Revelation. So the nations are going to form a coalition and come against Jerusalem one last time in the Battle of Armageddon. And they're going to fail. So verse 2 appears to be talking about that attack, Armageddon, upon Jerusalem at the end times. And all the nations are going to come against them, going to be defeated and retreat. So here's what he's saying in verse 2. I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. So what he was saying was, like somebody drinking a cup of wine and getting drunk and staggering and reeling around, that's what the nations are going to be like when they try to consume Jerusalem. Just like they consume wine and you get drunk, they're going to try to consume Jerusalem and they're going to stagger backwards and reel and fall over like a drunk person. So that's the image that he gives. When the nations try to consume Jerusalem... They will reel and stagger like they're drunk. And they'll also attack Judah, he says. The siege will also be against the bigger tribe, Judah, not just Jerusalem. Now, the word that's the only time in all the Old Testament the phrase cup of staggering is used right here. So it's the only time he's talking about a time to come when people will attack and stagger fall backwards because they can't take Jerusalem. Now, the word cup is used pretty often in the New Testament, or Old Testament, rather, and it's usually associated with judgment. God told the prophets to tell Israel, I'm bringing a cup against you. And by saying that, he's he's talking about judgment upon Israel. If you remember Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane in the New Testament and said, prayed three times father let this cup pass from me it's judgment the judgment of becoming our sin so usually cup all the way through not always psalm 23 it's not but most of the time whenever cup is used it refers to judgment and it does here a cup of staggering but that phrase is not used anywhere else go to verse three on that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. And all who lift it will surely hurt themselves. Uh, And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. So two images he gives of the battle against Jerusalem in the end times. Nations will gather together, come against Jerusalem... And like a drunk person staggering, they'll fall backwards. But here's a second image. As they come to Jerusalem and try to lift it and take control of it, it'll be like you lifting a rock and hurting yourself lifting it. Throw your back out, hurt yourself in some way. I'll make Jerusalem a heavy rock. They try to lift and they can't. And they injure themselves. What imagery They try to attack, turn away bloodied, stagger like a drunk man, fall backwards, try to lift it, and they can't hurt themselves. So Jerusalem, the image he gives, Jerusalem is protected 
and will be protected. Now let me stop there just for a moment. And let me talk just a little bit about the end times and Jerusalem. A lot of people say the end times battle is going to come down over Jerusalem between the Arabs, the Muslims, and the Jews or the Christians, those that are left. So the Arabs have possession of Jerusalem and, and, and the Temple Mount. It's kind of split now. The Temple Mount is. Israel is in control, but the Arabs are allowed their portion. They're wanting all of it because they say, the Muslims do, that Jerusalem is their third holiest site in all the world. Mecca, Medina, Jerusalem. Mecca, where Muhammad was born, Medina, where he died and buried, and Jerusalem. Third holiest site. That's what they say. So they say, oh, Jerusalem, we're passionate about Jerusalem. But history says something different. Jerusalem is not mentioned one time in the Quran. Did you know that? Not once. For it to be something that is so holy to them, it's never mentioned. Jerusalem is mentioned 800 times in the Bible. Not once in the Quran. Also, there was a section period of history where Arabs had total control of, of Jerusalem because the Israelites were scattered. And during those centuries when Arabs controlled Jerusalem, no Arab leader ever made it an object of a religious pilgrimage, ever. They did Mecca and Medina. Nobody said go to Jerusalem. Strange kind of a strange indifference toward the city for it to be something they claim is so passionate to our hearts. Well, preacher, what, wait a minute, what about the Dome of the Rock? That's passionate. Well, let's look at the Dome of the Rock for a second. The spot where the Dome of the Rock is, many of you have, have been there with us when we go to Israel, the spot where the Dome of the Rock is located is significant to Muslims for two reasons. Number one, it's the, there's a rock inside the Dome of the Rock that they worship at. They claim was the location where Abraham was going to take Isaac to sacrifice his son, Mount Moriah. And we Jews, we, we, we Christians agree. But the second reason is because they believe that rock was the place that Mohammed ascended back to heaven from that rock. But they didn't start believing that until the 1920s. 1920s. Became really popular by the 1930s. So in reality, the Dome of the Rock wasn't built because Jerusalem is this super holy place. It was built for two reasons. Number one, they wanted to get money from people making the pilgrimages back to Jerusalem from Jews and Christians. But second of all, they wanted to keep the Jews from rebuilding the temple on that site. So they built it. But as far as it just being something as passionate to their hearts, 
It never really has been. One other note in the Quran, I told you that Jerusalem was ever mentioned. There's one verse that seems to hint at Jerusalem, but it's not inside the Dome of the Rock. They have hundreds and hundreds of verses from the Quran posted around the Dome of the Rock. It's not one of them. So you see that in times, this battle over Jerusalem between the Jews and God's people and the Arabs, but they're really not that passionate about it anyway. But they say they are. But the end times, there appears to be what's going to be the point of contention that sets all of this off is Jerusalem between the Arabs and the Jews. By contrast, Christianity is full of Jerusalem being important to us. God says, I will divinely protect Jerusalem in Psalm 132. That's the only city in all the Bible that, that we're, we're commanded, pray for the peace of it, Psalm 122. The only place that in all the scripture where it says God says that he's chose to put his name there forever, 2 Chronicles 6, 6. And also the new heavens and the new earth are called the new Jerusalem. It's really important to God and his people. Not so much the Muslims, but they will be a part of a coalition. At the end of the times, according to verses 1 through 3, that will come against Jerusalem, but they'll not be able to take it. Now look at verse 4. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the people's with blindness. See the play on words, the horses are blind, but I'm not, God says. So what he's saying, in the end times when these nations come against Jerusalem, Israel, God says, I will strike every horse they ride with, with panic. The horses will panic and take off running the wrong direction. And the rider of the horses with madness. Now, here's a question. Is God talking literally horses, or is this a metaphor? That's a question a lot of people are asking. At the end times, right now, we don't use horses in warfare. We use tanks and drones and missiles and aircraft. Is God using horses and riders, because that's what they knew in Zechariah's day, as a metaphor for weapons that will be used in that day? And he really is talking about tanks and drones and and missiles? Or are they going to revert back to using horses at the end times? It's literal. Scholars kind of go both ways. There are some scholars, a minority, some scholars believe they will, we will revert back to using horses again. Most scholars believe it's a metaphor for weaponry. So those people who try to use weapons against Jerusalem, the end times, they will not, the missiles will go off course and those guiding the missiles will go mad and God will somehow miraculously protect Israel in that day. The weapons try to come against them will not succeed. Soldiers will be struck insane and with madness and the weapons themselves 
will not work. Verse 5. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. So here's what's going to happen. Those nations that are trying to come against Jerusalem and can't at the end of the world, and they fall back like drunk, a person like you're picking up a rock, hurt themselves, and the weaponry goes crazy, they're going to stop and step back and say, whoa, there's something different about Jerusalem that we can't take. And it's because their God, the God of Israel, is protecting it. And all the nations and the nation's leaders will acknowledge it. I can't picture what that's going to look like. Can you? Can you picture the CNN newscast now? The Fox News, the CBS Evening News, the NBC News. Can you imagine national leaders coming on saying, well, we tried to attack Jerusalem, but the God of Israel is more powerful than we are, and he protected it. I can't even imagine them saying that. But they will. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? But they will. Verse 6. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood. Like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. God's saying, in that day, I will preserve Jerusalem from the attackers and make them effective as they fight back. They will be like a pot in the midst of wood. It's blazing. So, he's not saying, I'll keep you from not being attacked. He is saying, when you are attacked, I'm going to protect you, and you'll be just as aggressive fighting back, and you'll win the victory. Verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. Verse 8. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day will be like David. The house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Let's, let's wrap up this portion before we get to verse 10 right quick. Now God says in verse 7 that I am going to protect the lineage of David. Where did Jesus come from? Lineage of David. I'm going to protect the lineage of David first. The residents of Jerusalem. And then he says, and hopefully the north and the south will not be fighting anymore among themselves. If you go back a couple of weeks, remember what happened in Israel, civil war, north and the south? And maybe, maybe big brother and little brother will come together and stop fighting. And then verse 8, as a part of his defense of Judah, God would strengthen even the feeblest among them. Did you notice that? Even the weakest among you be like David. Now think about that. David, when he was here, he was renowned for his fighting ability. 
Man, he was courageous and he was good and he was victorious. And God promises in the end times, the very weakest of my people be as strong as David. And the house of David will be like God. Wow. The angel of the Lord. Who's the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? Remember, if it says an angel of the Lord, it's just talking about an angel. If it's talking about the angel of the Lord, it's a reference to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. They'll be as strong as Christ in that day, going before them. They will receive supernatural strength. Jerusalem will in the end times, and God will defend their city. And all the nations that come against Israel at the very last times will not succeed. Now, let's go letter C on your outline. Look at verses 10 to 14. We'll close. Him who they have pierced. Now we talk about Jesus. Verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David in the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Let me stop there and give you a picture of what's happening. This is amazing, folks. Listen to what's going to happen at the end times. At the end times, God will defend the city of Jerusalem. But after he does, he's going to pour out a spirit on the Jewish leaders to realize they were wrong for crucifying Christ. Wow, think about that. There will be a spirit of remorse come over the Jewish nation for killing Jesus. It's not there now. You go to Jerusalem now, about 1% of the nation Christians. 2% if you count nominal Christians. 98% Hey, got what was coming to him. He wasn't the son of God. And that's their approach to Jesus' crucifixion. But at the end times, the Jewish leaders, the national leaders, the prime minister will come out and say, we were wrong for crucifying Christ. And there will be a God-given conviction And they will mourn over what they did, the one they pierced. Dr. Feinberg says that it will not be as much a mourning for the act as it will be for the person. So it's not that they're going to say, oh, we shouldn't have crucified him. It's that they'll be saying, we shouldn't have touched him. He's God. They'll humble themselves. And they'll realize that they were saved by the one whom they pierced. Boy, I want to see that newscast too, don't you? CNN and Fox and everyone come on. We're talking to the prime minister of Israel. And he comes on and says, look, we were wrong for crucifying Christ. What? Yes, he's, he's God. What? Yeah. 
Now, it says they will mourn as one who mourns the death of an only child, which some of you have, or the death of a firstborn child, which some of you have, which is intense mourning. I mean, think about the kind of mourning that's going to come and grief that's going to come to Jewish national leaders over what they did to Christ. Dr. Chambers says it is a picture of penitence as vivid and accurate as any found anywhere in the Bible. Revelation doesn't tell us this. Zechariah does. So look at verse 11. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Stop there for a second. Fascinating verse. The morning will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon. What in the world is Hadad Ramon? Well, it's not mentioned much in the Bible, only once or twice. Hadad Ramon was located in the plain of Megiddo. Where's the battle of Armageddon going to be fought? Plain of Megiddo. What does Armageddon mean? Hill of Megiddo. So it identifies the location for us. Now, what is Hadad Ramon? Well, it was a it was a city. Some people say it was a city. Um, and it was named after two Canaanite deities. Hamon was the god of rain, and Ramon was the god of thunder. And it was in the northern part. You remember when Elijah and the prophets of Baal were having this you know, fighting back and forth in, in the rain. It was over the rain. It had rained for three years. And God and Baal were going back and forth as to who's the God of rain. Canaanites thought that Baal was the God of rain. They also thought Hadad Ramon was the God of rain. And so in the northern part, in the, in the plain of Megiddo, so most people believe that he's referring to what's going to happen in the Armageddon. But why will the morning be as great on that day as the morning at Hadad Ramon? Do you remember in 2 Chronicles what happened at Hadad Ramon? The very favorite king of all of Israel in their entire history. They had one king they loved. Most of them were scoundrels. One king they loved, Josiah. Because Josiah was good. He did what was right. He took the throne at eight years old. He reigned 31 years. And he was killed while an arrow hit him while he was in a chariot at Hadad Ramon. And all the nation grieved because that was one they really loved. I looked up which American presidents are the most loved in history. You know who number one is? Lincoln. Our nation grieved the most over Abraham Lincoln when he was killed than any other president. Washington was number two. So it would be like our nation grieving over the most beloved president we've ever had and the grieving at the end times over what they did to Jesus will be greater than when they grieved over their favorite king. That was the reference to Hadad Ramon. 
It will be as great as the morning for Hadad and Ramon. Verse 11. Verse 12. The land shall mourn each family by itself. Family of the house of David by itself. Their wives by themselves. Family of the house of Nathan by itself. And their wives by themselves. Verse 13. The family of the house of Levi by itself. Their wives by themselves. The family of the Shemites by itself. And their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left. Each by itself. And their wives by themselves. Isn't that a weird thing to say? Let me give you two points and we'll close. The reason he, they, Zechariah mentioned this way. Whenever Israel grieved and it was true grief, they divided up to grieve. You know how sometimes when an animal is hurt, it goes, it goes away by itself? It's the same concept. Not whenever you're just grieving superficially. You could do that as a nation. But whenever Israel truly was sorry over what they did, they, they, they separated by sexes, men and women. They separated by clans. They went to their own homes. Whenever grief is so bad, you do it by yourself. And that's the picture here. The grieving in Israel will be so bad at the last times over what they did to Christ. They'll grieve deeply and they'll go away by themselves to grieve. So that's why he's mentioned, this sounds kind of weird to us. But that's why it shows the depth of the grief by saying they'll each go away by them, their wives by themselves, and Nathan by himself, and David by himself, and Levi by himself, and the Shimeites by themselves. But it's his way of saying the grief will be real and intense over crucifying Jesus. But here's the second thing. Notice the names mentioned, the house of David, the house of Nathan, the house of Levi, the house of the Shimeites. The house of David and the house of his son Nathan represented the political branches. Nathan was a political leader and David was a political leader of Israel. The names Levi and the Shemites, Levi, his grandson was Shemai. And so Levi and the Shemites, those weren't political leaders, they were religious leaders or spiritual leaders. So he mentions four names. Two religious leaders to political leaders. Most scholars believe the reason he mentioned those four is because who crucified Jesus? Religious leaders and the political leaders. And they joined forces. We're told in the Gospels, they joined forces to crucify. So the same type of leaders that crucified him will be the same ones leading the morning the grief and the end times over what they did to Christ. You know, nothing brings us to repentance more than truly seeing the crucified Savior, does it? When you truly get a picture of Christ, what He did, what our sin did, when you really get a picture of it, brings you to repentance it should so here's the pattern they'll look at Christ they'll mourn for him they'll repent repent of what they did now will they receive him as savior we're not told that in Zechariah we're not told that in Revelation but we are told they will mourn and grieve over what they did to him looking upon him 
and repentance comes. Next week, we'll look at chapter 13, all nine verses, and we'll look more at what he tells us about the end times and what's going to happen. If you have any questions or comments, see me afterwards or email me. I'm always glad to hear from you. Let's pray together. We'll close. God, thank you so much that you've told us at the end that you're going to be in control. Nations, world, leaders will not be in control, but you will. And Lord, you also tell us there will be grief, there will be remorse over what happened to Christ. And we thank you tonight for Jesus. We've looked upon him. We truly understand what happened. We realize it was our sin that put him there. And God, I want to thank you for forgiving us whenever we repent of our sins and trust Jesus as Savior. Thank you for making us your child and giving us repentance, or rather giving us forgiveness. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.